Good morning. Turn with me to Ephesians chapter 5. It's good to be back with you this morning, and I definitely bring greetings from my time with Grace Reformed Baptist Church uh, last Lord's Day, and uh, they definitely send their love and their gratitude for sharing me to allow uh, Pastor Barcelos to uh, instruct in Florida. But uh, this morning, as we come back to Ephesians chapter 5, we're we're addressing this fifth chapter of Paul's epistle, where we find that uh, we've been addressing it under a certain heading. The heading that we've been addressing it under is the earthly reality of the exalted Christ. We understand that this earthly reality was hinted at in chapter 2, when Paul said that the new humanity began, or is uh, the new human being is created in Christ. He says that in verse 21, in whom the whole building being fitted together is growing into a holy temple in the Lord, in whom you also are being built together into a dwelling of God in the Spirit. Again, progressing the analogy with reference not only to the temple of God, but Christ's very body. He says in chapter 3, verse 6, that the Gentiles are fellow heirs and fellow members of the body and fellow partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. And then similarly in, verse, in chapter 4, verse 15, is that we are to grow up in all aspects unto him who is the head, even Christ, from whom the whole body, being fitted and held together by what every joint supplies, according to the proper working of each individual part, causes the growth of the body for the building up of itself in love. And so we have seen that the Spirit of God extends the metaphor again to the analogy of light and darkness here in chapter 5. That which was formerly dedicated to destruction is destined now for eternal life. That which was dead in its trespasses and sins is now resurrected as a new creature in Christ. So follow along as I read for us. For context, Ephesians chapter 5, beginning in verse 8 through verse 21. The word of the Lord says, For you were formerly darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. For the fruit of the light consists in all goodness and righteousness and truth trying to learn what is pleasing to the Lord. Do not participate in the unfruitful deeds of darkness, but instead even expose them. For it is disgraceful even to speak of the things which are done by them in secret. But all things become visible when they are exposed by the light, for everything that becomes visible is light. For this reason it says, Awake, sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. Therefore be careful how you walk. Not as unwise men, but as wise, making the most of your time, because the days are evil. So then, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. And do not get drunk with wine, for that is dissipation. But be filled with the Spirit, speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody with your heart to the Lord, always giving thanks For all good things in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ to God, even the Father, 
and be subject to one another in the fear of Christ. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. Let us go to him in prayer now. Oh Lord, we ask you as we come before your word this morning, that as we attend to this means of grace by faith, that you would meet us here by your spirit, that we would not just be hearers of your word, but doers also, that we would seek the good of our neighbor, that we would seek the love of each other. Ultimately, though, Lord, that we would seek your glory above all else. We ask these things in the name of Christ our Lord. Amen. Well, as you can see uh, this morning as we address verses 11 through 14 of Ephesians chapter 5, uh, our attention remains on this idea of light and the Christian life. For we are not to participate in the unfruitful deeds of darkness, but instead even expose them. We also have reference here to uh, things becoming visible when they're exposed by the light. For everything that becomes visible is light. And so this morning we'll address these uh, verses under two headings, under two types of light, if you will, the moon and the sun. We first address our passage this morning, addressing it under the heading of the moon, because the light of the moon is a reflective light, and that light is considered uh, a glory, and so it is a reflective glory. What we see in those first couple verses, in verses 11 and 12, we have this idea that our light, the light that we are to shine, is supposed to be reflective, for if we Go back to Ephesians chapter 5, it says, or chapter 1, or Ephesians chapter 5, verse 1, therefore be imitators of God as beloved children. We are to reflect the love of God that has been given to us in the Spirit of God through the mediation of the Son of God. And what is our exhortation this morning is do not participate. In verse 11, do not participate in the unfruitful deeds of darkness. This idea of do not participate was in older translations, translated, have no fellowship. But here in in a modern translation, they give us a more um, interpretive translation, and it is do not participate. This idea that we are to have nothing to do with. Do not enter into partnership or partake with the unfruitful deeds of darkness. In the previous verses, it says that these things should not even be named among us as is proper among saints. Our good friend John Gill observes how the apostle says in 2 Corinthians 6.14, Do not be bound or do not be unequally yoked together with unbelievers. For what partnership have righteousness and lawlessness? And what fellowship has light with darkness? Here, uh, the Apostle Paul encouraging the uh, saints in Corinth to have a circumspect understanding of their relation to unbelievers, such that they would need to guard themselves from being yoked together, from being seen together in a way that their actions and their lifestyles and their practices transfer onto you and you become 
associated with them in the sense that uh, you are seen to participate in their deeds. But John Gill observes that this, the apostle says in 2 Corinthians 6.14, it is here that the Spirit gives the moral application or theologically known as the tropological explanation of the law in Deuteronomy 22, verses 9 through 11. I'll read that for you so you may understand. In Deuteronomy 22, 9, it says, You shall not sow your vineyard with two kinds of seed, or all the produce of the seed which you have sown and the increase of the vineyard will become defiled. You shall not plow with an ox and a donkey together. You shall not wear a material mixed of wool and linen together. There we have these Levitical laws, or we have these, um, excuse me, mosaic laws, these very specific mosaic laws as it relates to sowing uh, agriculture, as it relates to the plowing of the field, and as it relates to their, the clothes that they even wear on their skin. All of them relating to the intermixing of two things, incongruent with one another. Specifically, we see it very clearly in verse 10. You shall not plow with an ox and a donkey together. In other words, you shall not yoke an ox and a donkey together, for they will be unequally yoked. And Dr. Gill sees that that uh, word in 2 Corinthians 6.14 is a exposition of Deuteronomy 22, that we are not to be unequally yoked together with unbelievers. And so furthermore, in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 11, do not participate in the unfruitful deeds of darkness, but instead even expose them. We can add, for what partnership have darkness and light? Or what fellowship has light with darkness? For we recognize that the truth, and by this we recognize that the truth of our salvation is not to be one of isolation, but one of visitation. We may conclude from this that since we are not to participate with the um, unfruitful works of darkness or unfruitful deeds of darkness, but instead even expose them, that first and foremost that we are to be isolated from the world. That we are not to be associated in any civil way with unbelievers. And yet we find that this is not the will of our Savior. This is not the wisdom of his word. For if you turn with me to John 17, we will see very clearly that Christ intended for us not to be isolated, but to act in a way that's, that as we are visiting or sojourning here. This is Christ's high priestly prayer. We visited it. We have visited it, it often and we've gleaned much from it here this morning. If you look at uh, John 17, verse 3, first we get to the crux of all eternal life, that this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. And again, an exposition of this high priestly prayer would give us such wonderful Christological truths and such wonderful Trinitarian truths that we may understand more of who our God is, more of who our Savior is in, in the incarnation. But this morning we look for something different and we see that in verse 13. Christ says, but, or is praying and he says, but now I come to you and these things I speak 
in the world so that they may have my joy made full in themselves. I have given them your word and the world has hated them because they are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. I do not ask you take them out of the world, but to keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, I also have sent them into the world. For their sakes, I sanctify myself that they themselves also may be sanctified in truth. I do not ask on behalf of these alone, but for those also who believe in me through their word. So obviously we see Christ praying for the apostles, but then even beyond the apostles, those whom he will speak through and by whom he will wrought salvation in, those who would believe in Christ through their word, such as we read in Ephesians 5, that we read Paul exhorting the Ephesians to believe in Christ. And so we see this morning as we return back to Ephesians chapter 5 that it is not the intention of God that we would be isolated from the world, but that we would see our time here as one of visitation, one of sojourning, a passenger, a foreigner, a traveler along the way. We are to live among the sons of disobedience and children of wrath among whom we once were. And we are to live as aliens and sojourners. But we are also to see ourselves as travelers nonetheless, such that we would not get ensconced or we would not get wrapped up in these ways of the world, these unfruitful deeds of darkness, that we would not be considered participants in them. Again, I was much helped by uh, Gil this week. For he says of Ephesians 5.11, It is not said with the workers of darkness or with the men of the world who are in darkness and are darkness itself to have fellowship with them in a civil way. It's not said to not have fellowship with them in a civil way or to dwell among them. It is not prohibited. It is also of and countenanced by the great examples and especially it is lawful and right when there is any prospect of doing good to the souls of men and even when natural right, relation, and necessity require it. And indeed, the contrary is impractical. 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 He says impracticable conversation with them in things sinful and superstitious should be abstained from. And when it tends to draw off the soul from Christ and his interests and is infectious, and when weak ones are offended and sinners are hereby hardened and confirmed in sin, and the name of God is blaspheme and the gospel of evil is spoken of. The gospel is evil spoken of. Excuse me. And so we see there by uh, the explanation of Gill that we find here that what is prohibited is not the dwelling among the children or the sons of disobedience and the children of wrath where in other places he said for then you would have to be taken out of the world completely as we will see but he says that we would be right 
And indeed, we would do well to see that our conversation with them would not be of sinful and superstitious nature. We would not engage in them in such things as their obsession with the knowledge or the divination of the future through such idolatry as astrology, through such things as chance and fortune. We would not engage with them, obviously, in sinful conversation of things that are filthy and silly talk and coarse jesting, things related to uh, what they even in their shame only do in secret. We should also abstain from things that tend to draw off the soul from Christ and his interests. There is much of this world that's an interest, and all of this world is, an interest, is interested in things other than Christ. And they want us to come along with them. They want to say, be interested in this with us. Chase after this. It's a worthy thing to chase after. Do you not want this for your family? Do you not want this for yourself? To which we may say, though I may receive those temporary things you seek and fully focus on, though I may receive them by the good hand of God, we dare not make them our sole focus. But he goes further. He says that when weak ones are offended and sinners are hereby hardened and confirmed in sin, and the name of God is blaspheme and the gospel is evil spoken of, here we should not go along. That's where we are to stop and to recognize that our citizenship with this world has a limit when it comes into conflict with our citizenship in heaven. And so we would never be drawn into conversation. We would never be drawn into participation to blaspheme God and the gospel or to speak evil of the gospel. The idea here is because... He says in verse 12, For it is disgraceful even to speak of the things which are done by them in secret. That our light is to be a reflective light like the moon reflects the light of the sun. So we are to be with the unbelieving world. A reflective light of God's glory. A reflective light of God's righteousness. A reflective light of God's moral character before a world that is filled and is uh, groping in the darkness. And even them that walk in darkness. Here we see Paul expressing this understanding that they do things disgraceful in secret. There, the light of nature comes upon their conscience, the law of God written upon their heart as image bearers of God, such that they don't go and flaunt these out before a, a, a watching world. And yet in our day and age, if you want to put something as to how is, it, how is it, why is it so bad? For we know there's sin in this world. Why is it so bad to see such images and to see such parades and to see such uh, celebration of things? Because they used to be done in secret. They used to be done under the countenance and restraining hand of God 
upon their evil hearts that they would actually be shamed of these things and yet now what was done in secret is now done in the light. How much more should we not participate? How much more should we see our citizenship in this world has a limitation? For it is disgraceful even to speak of the things which are done by them in secret. But we must also recognize that as we see it here, that we are, it says, but instead even expose them. Now, this does not make us their Holy Spirit or to be pious police. This does not make us their Holy Spirit or to be pious police. This exposure of the deeds of darkness can come as the Lord provides opportunity in ways of rebuke and ways of correction but this exposure is to be reflective. This exposure is to be by your mere lack of presence, by your mere presence, by your mere character, that they are to feel a sense of difference. I know in a very small way in my own life as a bivocational preacher. So I, I live in this world. I work in this world. I work among unbelievers. And oftentimes as they get to know me, Without my own provocation, I don't seek to get them to change their attitude or to change their language, as I find oftentimes it, it, it interests me that they apologize to me when they use filthy language in front of me. Oh, I, I'm sorry, as if I would be offended. Now, granted, I'm thankful for the work of the con their conscience upon their hearts, and I'm thankful oftentimes when they're seeking to not blaspheme God in front of me in that way. And I'm certainly no uh, perfect, pious saint walking around with long tassels and demanding these things, nor am I a perfect exemplar of a Christ follower. But in the small way that the Lord has allowed me influence, I'm able to see this in my own life. And I see this in scripture that in first Corinthians five, Paul exhorts the Corinthians. He says, I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with immoral people. I did not at all mean with the immoral people of this world or with the covetous and swindlers or with idolaters for then you would have to go out of the world. But actually I wrote to you not to associate with any so-called brother. If he is a moral person or covetous or an idolater or a violer, or a drunkard, or a swindler, not even to eat with such a one. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Do you not judge those who are within the church, but those who are outside God judges? And so we see that the Lord's intention is for us to be a reflective light, that we, though may have opportunity to speak our minds as we are uh, as people engage with us in this way, but we are not to go around and be, to be other people's Holy Spirit or to be pious police. For we don't want people to be moral. We want people to be saved. And certainly a saved person desires to be moral. One commentator says Christians are called to expose the deeds of darkness, not by running investigations and seeking to find out their evil but by living differently, by being light in the Lord, 
The very image of light has this effect naturally, namely that it shows the darkness to be what it is. That pregnant pause when there's something going on in the group or something getting passed around and it reaches you and you don't continue on. That idea of of when a conversation comes up and the next thing you know, you're no longer in it. You'd be surprised how much is seen by no action or by retreat than by aggressive, pious policing. The enduring reminder for the Christian is most definitely that this this enduring reminder for the Christian that do not participate in the unfruitful deeds of darkness for the Christian is most definitely law. Do not participate in the unfruitful deeds of darkness. But its source of endurance is the gospel. And for that, we turn our attention away from the moon, away from reflective glory, and to the source of light for us naturally, which is the sun. We see that in verses 13 through 14. It says, but all things become visible when they are exposed by the light. For everything that becomes visible is light. For this reason, it says, awake sleeper and arise from the dead and Christ will shine on you. There's much to be addressed in these couple verses because we see a change in subject. We see a movement away from light and dark as evil and righteous, but as unseen and seen. That there are things that will become visible when they are exposed by the light. And for everything that becomes visible is light. And so we ask ourselves, maybe, what is this understanding here? And the, the word that's used and translated here that becomes visible is translated in other translation as the idea that for everything that makes visible is light. So it, 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 it's toned differently. But it carries the same meaning. For everything that becomes visible is light. Everything that shines light is light. So even as we are reflective of the glory of Christ, of his righteousness, it is by his imputation that we are righteous, that we can be considered light. But lest we rely on our own selves, our own works. It continues on for this reason. It says, awake sleeper and arise from the dead and Christ will shine on you. You are not the source of the light. You are reflective of it. The source of the light is Christ. But who says it? It says, for this reason, it says in verse 14, here's another difficult part of the passage. Who says it? Because that it could be translated as he. Where does it say this? For this, there's much discussion as to its origin. Paul Bain recognizes that there are four viable options. I think his second one is most likely, uh, is the most likely. And it says that the mat- this matter, that the matter of this is everywhere written, it being the sum of the gospel, repentance from dead works, and faith on Christ. 
So awake, sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. We don't find these, this exact wording in the prophets. We find very closely wordings of it. We find pieces of it, and that we could all put it together and say, well, this piece was from that passage, and this piece was from this passage. But I think here what is being said is collectively as a whole, the Spirit of God through Paul is saying the testimony of Scripture, the sum of the gospel is repentance from dead works and faith on Christ. We do, though, and it would be helpful to see how closely related it is into what was anticipated in the Old Testament. And so we've, we did this a couple weeks ago, but turn with me to Isaiah chapter 60. Let's remind ourselves of this wonderful chapter in the gospel of Isaiah. Arise and shine. Verse 1, for your light has come, and the glory of the Lord has risen upon you. For behold, darkness will cover the earth, and deep darkness the peoples. But the Lord will rise upon you, and his glory will appear upon you. Nations will come to your light, and kings to the brightness of your rising. They're prophetically looking ahead to the coming, the first advent of the Messiah, who comes to the darkness and is the light of life. He is the light of men. And he comes to bring light. He rises upon the people in deep darkness. Such that here is it's anticipated in Ephesians. It's happened. And then in verse 19, we also look for the day of its fullness. No longer will you have the sun for light by day, nor for brightness will the moon give you light. For you will have the Lord for an everlasting light and your glory and your God for your glory. Your sun will no longer set, nor will your moon wane. For you will have the Lord for an everlasting light and the days of your mourning will be over. Then all your people will be righteous They will possess the land forever, the branch of my planting, the work of my hands, that I may be glorified. There is the blessed hope of the Christian, the day when our faith shall be sight, when our hope shall be realized. And yet we are not there yet. We recognize that we are in between the first and second advent of Christ, that we have the hope of this in the giving of the Spirit in our hearts as he enlightens us and brings us and makes us children of light, that we may walk as children of light. And yet we still oftentimes fall into our former ways, our darkened paths, the futility of our previous minds that was darkened in our understandings. And so the Word of God tells us to awake sleeper, and arise from the dead. Thomas Manton says, God often commands those things which he performs by his own grace and gives us to do what he bids us to do. By this, these exhortations and commands, his spirit works that effectually in us, which he requires of us. The dead do not arise on their own. 
and a sleeper is not easily woken. But here, as the Word of God bids us, and, and I keep this in the context of the believer, I don't think Paul is changing his subject to the unbeliever. I think his, his eye is still on the believer. For in verse 15, we're not there yet, but we will be soon. It says, Therefore, be careful how you walk, not as unwise men, but as wise, making the most of your time, because the days are evil. I think that comes in context right after he tells the believer to awake sleeper and arise from the dead. For he's warning those that may be tempted to participate in the unfruitful deeds of darkness. Those that even now who bear the name of Christ, who do participate in the unfruitful deeds of darkness, they are to awake and to arise. Why is it so urgent? This is not uh, something to wait upon. Wait until the morning. This is not something to wait for until some, such and such happens in your life or as soon as I get this under control or this is happening because I just need to straighten this out. No, it says awake, sleeper, and arise from the dead. There's urgency in this call. That these will ultimately, these, these associations or these walkings with the scoffer, sitting in the seats of scoffer, standing in the way of sinners, participating in the unfruitful deeds of darkness will ultimately desensitize us and make us accept what we should abhor, tolerate what tempts or actually desire what displeases God when we are so familiar with the profane that it no longer offends and we have forgotten how to blush because of it, then we are in grave spiritual danger. For this, the word of God says, awake, sleeper, and arise from the dead. What is the hope and assurance of its success, of this awaking and this arising from the dead, we do have a hope of its assurance, or we do have hope and assurance of, it, of, it, of its success. And it's certainly not our working, certainly not our arising, and it's certainly not our awakening. But it is the completed work of another. For what does it say? For And Jesus Christ, or Christ, will shine on you. Jesus is the gospel. He is inseparable from the blessing that the gospel brings into our lives. And all those blessings are only to be found in Christ. Though we have this imperative to awake and to arise. It is fir firmly founded and grounded in the work of Christ. That the work of Christ will shine on you. So you being like the moon will reflect his glory and his light. For what is the moon without the sun? It is darkened. It is only a celestial orb unseen by the eye of man. And so we look to the sun and look not to our own reflection, but we look to Christ. Consider Isaiah, the next chapter in Isaiah in chapter 61, and I'll use the first three verses to close with. 
The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the afflicted. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and freedom to prisoners, to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn, to grant those who mourn in Zion, giving them a garland instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning, the mantle of praise instead of a spirit of fainting, so that they will be called oaks of righteousness, the planting of the Lord, that he may be glorified. Amen. Let's pray. Oh, Lord God, we give you praise that as your word bids us to not participate, your word bids us to awake and to arise out of our stupor, even to arise out of something associated with death and dead things that it does not give us this command without the attending power of the Spirit as we are united with Christ. That power, Lord, that you've wrought in us already by bringing us from death to life. Lord, that our hearts will be sensitive to the things that displease you, to the filthiness of this world, that we would not participate in it, but that we would expose it for your glory. That those that look upon us may know that we are citizens of a greater kingdom and that our hope is sure so that they too may put their faith in Christ alone. We ask you these things. We thank you of the assurance of these things in Christ Jesus. Amen.